Hi everyone, I'm Gregory Paulini, founder of Gregory Paulini Design and Secretary of the Board for the Cabinet Makers Association. And I'd like to welcome you to episode 12 of Pro Cabinet Maker, a monthly podcast produced by the CMA. Each month, we'll chat with some outstanding industry professionals about the issues and challenges impacting their business, as well as success stories to inspire. My guest today is Andy Wilza, founder of Premier Eurocase in Denver, Colorado. Premier produces some of the best panel layups in the world and also produces a wide array of store and point of sale fixtures. Some of his clients include Taco Bell, Quiznos, Sports Authority, but one of the most interesting things about Andy is he started as a one-man shop in his garage, and in less than a lifetime, he's grown that to the behemoth of Premier with 150 or more employees and over 300,000 square feet. I'm looking forward to the discussion, so welcome to the podcast, Andy. Happy to be here. Thank you. The whole reason for this dialogue is I attended a CMA national conference in 2018. And part of that was going to Premier Eurocase, touring the facility and meeting you. You were like super open with everything there, really excited to give tours and really seemed eager to share. And I walked away from that conference with the mindset of Premier Eurocase was created by one guy who started in his garage just like me and just like a lot of other CMA members. And, you know, what kind of what was running through my head is, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. But, you know, how? That's the thing. And I know the big picture is sell lots of stuff and grow, but it's growth costs money. And there's always going to be something there that I don't know about. So really what I'm wondering is specifics, gleaming into some of the insight or the specifics of how you evolved on your journey that's not just inspiring, but can actually provide actual steps that myself, other folks could follow if, and it, it's a big, if we wanted to go that way, because I'm sure that not everybody wants to get to the size where you're are. So anyhow, before we even get going, a lot of our listeners don't know either of us from Adam, just super quick on my end. In 2006, I was a one-man shop in a two-car wide, two-car deep garage, so... It's roughly a thousand square feet. Today, my shop's evolved to 11 people in about 10,000 square feet. And we're a custom cabinetry shop. We focus on residential cabinetry and we're, we're vertically integrated. We make our own doors, our own drawers. We do all of our own finishing. We even do our own installation. That's where we are. In addition to the residential cabinetry, we do closet systems, solid surface countertops, some light millwork. Anyhow, that's a little bit about me. Rumor has it your story starts a little like mine, but maybe got a little bit bigger. So tell me about that. Yeah, it's funny how everybody starts about the same because I started earlier. So 1987, I started in an 800 square foot shop. When I was a carpenter that I moved back from Arizona and in Colorado, you need a shop. So I started a cabinet shop. So I really only had hand tools and things like that. So I borrowed $16,000 from my parents and I bought my first Powermatic 66 and general things. And I started a cabinet shop. And again, that was 37 years ago, but it's all been organic. We never really had this epiphany. All of a sudden we did this major thing that made us excel. We just grew over the years. And again, we could 
spend a whole day talking about this, but we started out, like I said, one man basically being a carpenter. I hired a couple guys in the first few years. I never had more than three for the first five years. And we were just, we were kind of the carpenters. We built decks. We built whatever the customer needed, but we were just carpenters. And from there, it just went into, I bought a few more machines and we would make some kitchens and we would make our own doors and things like that. And where we made a really good product, it was hard to grow because there was a hundred thousand people making the same thing that we were. And God bless you for installing, but we killed that early. We just, we would not leave the shop for anything. We produced a product and we would ship it or yet come pick it up. We wouldn't leave the shop to install only because we had done it and you turn the lights off and leave and it's not productive. So we stopped that. But I would say our paths are parallel. I just let it go farther, but it just, again, it's been a lot longer since 87. So it's just been gradual. Gotcha. So it sounds like we're your first starting out. You had certain skills and you're like just in survival mode, just pick up whatever jobs you can to do whatever you can. And you just let that go to what opportunities started coming your way. No, that's for sure. Correct. Job one was feed the family. First five years, that's just what happened. It's like you did whatever you had to to put up food on the table and pay for cars and things like that. But I think what stood out from us is it was always quality. Quality was everything to us. And so maybe sales weren't real high, but we were great at what we did. So I would say after about five years, we just built customers. We just built loyal customers that just loved us. And whatever they did, we were their guides. So as those customers grew, we grew with them. In 92, we got our first retail account, which was Sports Authority, which way back in the day was Guard Sports and Sports Authority and Oshman's all over the nation. They're the largest sporting goods retailer. And a contractor I was working with came to me and asked me if I could make them a checkout. I said, sure, because he was doing some remodeling there. So we built them a checkout and met the people at Guard Sports. And from that day, we produced every store fixture they ever bought. And so Again, they're a major retailer, right? So we build customers on customers. So you have somebody like Sports Authority that will give you great recommendations and you can go after bigger customers and then allow it to grow that way. And that's what we did. Gotcha. So you found a little niche there and you also coupled that niche with a, and I, I it, this all sounds serendipitous actually, but you found this thing that other people weren't doing. So you had a niche and you had a, I don't want to call it a fledgling company, but it wasn't sports authority then. And you just got your foot in the door there. So it was like when an opportunity met you with some luck and created the serendipitous moment. Yeah, that's absolutely for sure. And it's, if, if you look at all of our growth in the first 20 years, it was all about that. I had a friend that was making food carts for sports stadiums. And he asked me if I could make a prototype for Taco Bell. So I said, sure. So we spent two or three months producing prototypes. They accepted it. We started doing Taco Bells at sports stadiums. And we did that for about two years. And everybody loved us. And this salesman left, started his own company, 
and got into Quiznos. And because we were great at what we did, he just automatically came to us and said, hey, can you do this? We built 5,000 stores for Quiznos. In 2005 and six, we were building five stores every day. Again, I'd like to say it's because we're great and everything, but it's because we built good relationships. We've built a great product. Sometimes I didn't get the money I wanted, but it was all about building the business. So I would discount a few things to, to move the ball along. It just led to more retail accounts. The pretty straightforward there of we want to grow, we have to do sales. That's super obvious here. And a lot of it was just coupled with just serendipitous events that happened. Backing up a, a here, so you, you didn't. You didn't go from making a food cart to doing five or six Quiznos a day. At some point there, you had to do something to increase your throughput from the two or three guys that were building decks. So when these opportunities or these sales were happening as they were evolving, did you start to prioritize equipment over personnel or vice versa at first? And did that change along the way? How did you scale up basically? Yeah, I've never really been a fan of labor just because it's inconsistent. I've always been a machine guy. I've been a car guy, a machine guy. I'm in a mechanical thing. So anytime I could buy a new piece of technology, I did. So okay. a lot of times it was more about want than need. And a lot of the things that I acquired, I just got pretty lucky that I acquired it and learned how to use it. And then work came along to use it too. We very rarely ever bought a defensive machine where all of a sudden I was too busy and I had to get some technology. We're pretty much in front of all that. Back in the early 90s, I decided, okay, we're just going to be a panel processor. So I just started buying used machinery that was full of pain. And I learned early that entry-level things are bad. Regardless what anybody tells you, all these stepping stones, just, you need to get the boulder and just start with the real thing. So I got hooked up with Styles in, in 93, and I bought my first Holtzman panel saw in 93. And from 93 on, we were a panel processor. And so we made money. We were very good at it. And every penny we made, we reinvested. Everything was reinvested in more technology. Again, there wasn't any magic there. It's just that we've always been profitable. Money is easy when you're profitable. If you're distressed, money's hard. You have to start going to your neighbor and asking for money. We were never in that position. So it was always easy for us to keep buying more technology. And I was pretty good at predicting what's next and having the technology ready for what's next. You answered a lot of questions for me anyhow, when you said you purchased equipment before you needed it. So that was something I, I'm a bit guilty of being reactive here. I see bottlenecks in my shop and now it's okay. How am I going to alleviate that bottleneck? But you were basically saying, hey, I'm going to get this piece of equipment. I'm not going to have a bottleneck and I'll figure out how to use it to its fullest. Am, am I going the right direction? No, that's, that's exactly right. There's a lot of risk in what I did, but it's been really an advantage for us because I have a high threshold of financial pain. So I'll really go out on a limb for things that I think are going to be the future. And it's always worked. So it's really about being offensive. And then you have to defend all the people that fall behind you and say, oh, he did that. We're going to do that too. And then you're always on defense after that. But you approach an offense. 
And again, these might seem like really ridiculous questions, but so you're going to invest in this equipment, but when that happened, is that all self-funding? Did you reach out to finance companies? Did you go back to mom and dad, get them up for more cash? How'd that process actually happen? Yeah. Mom and dad were basically done after the first 16,000. So they were no longer an option. But like I said, we always made money. So it was easy to get leases. As long as I was buying things that the leasing company understood, they were okay with it. You got to go to the leasing companies that really support woodworking machinery. So they really understand what you're doing. You have to fake a business plan and tell them what you're going to do with it, even though you don't know what you're going to do with it. And so early on, I would do leases. As time went on, basically the rule was anything under half a million, we would pay cash for anything over half a million would be leased. And that's the rule we've been with, but we never had problem borrowing money simply because we were strong. I would never want to be in the position where I wasn't strong and had to buy something because that's hard. So at first, just my shop, I have, I have to borrow cash for big machines. I have a Ferrari in the other room that actually has the Holzer label on it, but it's still my Ferrari. And I own half of that machine. The leasing company owns half of that machine at this point. But at some point, you decided half a million was your threshold. And if it's under a half a million, you're going you're gonna to pay cash. If it's over a half a million, you're going to finance it. What did your business look like? at that point, even just a, a ballpark revenue number where it, you felt comfortable with that? Or was it just really more of a percentage of profits? Hey, we've got this much gross profit. Now I just feel more comfortable writing big checks myself. I don't know. I'm not a bean counter. I just do what I think I want to do. Okay. And if I see revenue strong for the next year and I see a lot of cash in the bank, I'll just write a check. Maybe smart, maybe not. There wasn't a lot of strategy behind it because I don't have partners. I don't have to answer to anybody. I have to explain to my wife what I do sometimes. But other than that, I do what I want to do and it works. If I had a partner, this would be really hard because most people wouldn't spend the money that I do without some kind of real reasoning behind it. On that same note, so has ownership always been just yourself or at one point, did you have any partners? No. Never had any partners. I know a lot of people have had partners and that's never really worked that well. Some people need partners. Some people are weak at something and need need the support or they have to bring in a partner for financial support. I've just never had to do that. I'm really stubborn. I don't work well with others. So the whole thing would just fall apart if I had a partner. So that was just never something I wanted to do. I totally can relate to that. I would consider myself a benevolent dictator. That's right. <laughs> Thinking back on my time there, again, going to some of these machineries and just what you're telling me, you saw technology that you just thought was really cool. And it's, I can see a place for that. And I'm going to figure out how to make it work. That was really the impetus for several of the purchases that you've made. Is that correct? Yeah. Most of the big stuff I buy is offensive. I like things that nobody else has. And I'm really competitive. So when I see something that's really cool and I think there's a market for it and it's not being satisfied, I'm going to do it. 
And then I'll dare somebody else to compete with me on that level. And that's really worked. It's like when we got into the high gloss laminating 12, there was a couple guys in the U.S. doing it. They were doing a horrible job. And I saw a big opportunity there. So spent about two million bucks on the full PUR line, clean room, the whole process. And it was great. It was great. It was a great thing to show off. I like showing up shop. We built that clean room. It's all glass. I wanted to be stand on the outside of it and see what's going on. That was an offensive move that, that really worked. The latest thing we did was a big chunk. Like I said, it was close to 7 million bucks with the full robotic saw program and the fully automated laser bander and all that. We produced about 1,700 laser banded doors a day. And nobody ever touches anything until it comes out. It's just a fabulous thing. So, again, I do things for competition. I do things that I think make sense. I don't spend a lot of time with the math. If it's logical, then we're going to do it. So, some of the things that are running through my head here is basically going back to that first checkout. It seems like at that point, when you saw, hey, I can build this checkout that other folks aren't building or contractors are searching for people to build, I'm done with decks. And at that point, whether it was conscious or not, you're, you're gravitating towards, hey, my business has got to be a niche business going forward. Yeah, that's for sure. I, I don't know if it's just an understanding that I had with the market or whatever, but I don't like doing things that everybody else does. Okay. But then you're, you're just one of... 50 guys that do the same damn thing. I wanted, I want to do something special and I want to be the best at it. And then I invite the competition. It's funny how a competition really is everything. So I know a lot of our member shops compared to what you do, we're a bit more commodities where we are doing what 50 other shops do. But with that said, I think we probably all have some opportunity to find little niche things that work within the things that we do. So we, we could have that same opportunity. Just something that kind of hit me on the side here is just how much do you think that being in the right place, not just at the right time, but in the right place, Denver 40 years ago, is it wasn't what it is today. And I'm guessing that played a huge part in it as well. It's funny, but we do very little work and have done very little work in Colorado. Interesting. All the retail, now the headquarters were here, like Sports Story, Dark Sports headquarters were here. Quiznos headquarters was here. So that helps. But okay. these are all national accounts and everything gets shipped out of state. Now we do a lot of panel processing and laminating the local market. So that's good. But there's a lot of small shops in Colorado. 20 years ago, there was probably seven or eight big shops. Now there's three. So the big shops are gone. I think 2007, eight killed some of them. So Colorado is a great place to operate out of, but I wouldn't say there's any real strategic advantage of being in. You've answered so many of the questions that I have here, and I don't want to abuse your time here, but I'm hoping I could sneak in one or two more. And one of those is maybe outside of the actual finance and the sales of, and how that actually grew the business. Within your business, what are possibly some of the hardest lessons that you learned during your journey? For for example, in my case, 
for me, I was getting to the point where I could let go of my baby. I could essentially trust that other people are going to do things to my expectations. And it doesn't actually have to be me doing it. For the longest time, I thought I had to build the cabinets. I micromanaged crap for way too long, but I think I got over that. And I'm guessing that you probably had some moments that happened along the way that these were huge for yourself or for your management to help grow the business as well. Anything like that? Yeah, I personally love micromanaging. It gets a bad rap out there, but I like it. I like I just like being the dictator and telling everybody how it's gonna happen. I've got great guys that work I've got guys that work for me for thirty years. I got that going for me, but yeah, I like to micromanage. They know that I like to micromanage. They do the best they can with me micromanaging. And the system just works. The difficult stuff is when you try to back away from micromanaging, it's really hard because you find that people, some people, don't make the same decisions you would. Or some things are not as important to them as they are to you. And the frustration level of that is just enormous for me because... Everything we do has to be perfect. If it's not perfect, I want to know why. And that's a pretty high standard. And so I'd rather that burden be on me, not on everybody else. And I guess I started with saying there. there's a lot of CMA members that they see your journey from a one-man shop to what Premier has become. And some of us, that that's super, super inspiring, even if we don't want to get that big. And I know some of us don't. I, I don't see myself getting that big, but I, I definitely see myself growing. And I just, at the end of the day, I kind of wonder, and this is open-ended, was the juice worth the squeeze? Or if you had a mulligan, would it all be the same? For sure, no, it would not all be the same. So being the size that we are, it's painful for all kinds of regulatory things, having a lot of employees, dealing with all kinds of things. And, and we only have 130 people, so it's not like we're a big company. The sweet spot for me was about 50 employees. So if I was going to do it all over again, it would be more machines, less employees, just to simplify it. Because right now, it's hard. When you, again, micromanaging, I love it. But when you get this big and you micromanage, it's a 24-hour-a-day job. You wake up at three o'clock in the morning thinking about what has to happen at seven o'clock. And it's that's not all good, but that's just how I do it. So that's, that's the way it is. But yeah, it's hard. Gotcha. 50 would have been the sweet spot or 50 was the sweet spot. If we could do it over again, that might be where we'd hang out for a while. Yeah, I just have fond memories of the 2012, 13, 14. And I couldn't even, I couldn't even tell you why. But it was just an easier time. I totally appreciate it. It's, this This is the kind of stuff that we all sit here and scratch our head. We wonder, and we really don't know how it operates inside. We, we don't really know the whole growth, how it happened, and the details of it. So this has been huge. And again, I could pick your brain for <laughs> all day here, but I know that we're limited on time and I've already used up enough of yours. So I want to really thank you for joining me today given me some really candid answers, really straight answers to uh, what I'm wondering, what other CMA members are wondering. And I'm positive that some of the things that you've said here are going to help us on our journey as well. 
So, Andy, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to uh, talk to you. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of Pro Cabinet Maker. Join us each month as we discuss trends that impact the woodworking industry. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the Cabinet Makers Association, be sure to visit us online at cabinetmakers.org. See you next time.